Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33 is a transformative passage on marriage. Uh, You can't have a Christian marriage without paying attention to the principles and the guidelines that are given in these verses. At the same time, when we come to these God-breathed verses, we need to make sure that we pay careful attention to the story within the story. The story basically is all about the role of husbands and wives in redeeming marriage and causing marriage to be what God intended it to be. Hebrews 13 verse 4 says, let marriage be held in honor among all. How do we do that? Husbands and wives must take heed to Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. But it, there's a story within the story. This is not just simply about marriage. The story within the story is about Christ and the church. And many times we do not value and recognize and appreciate that idea, that concept of Christ and the church. But I've tried to stress to us that if you ignore this important truth, then basically our marriages will never, ever be what God wants them to be. If you take out this truth of Christ and the church, then this whole book of Ephesians, these six chapters that Paul has written to the church at Ephesus, it won't make sense. Christ and the church, if you ignore that teaching, your Christian life will be as a spiritual pauper. You will be poor in trying to walk with God. This is an essential truth. It's a rich theological truth that we need to pay attention to. Our text basically has been pointing out three relationships to speak of this relationship between Christ and the church. The first relationship is the relationship of Christ and the church. That is, there is an organic relationship between the Lord Jesus Christ and what we are referring to as the church, the universal body of Christ. It is such an intimate relationship that shockingly Paul uses a marriage verse. Genesis 2.24, one of the profound verses on marriage, Paul uses that and instead of talking about marriage, he says that verse speaks of the relationship between Christ and the church. And when you think about that relationship, Paul says it is a one flesh relationship. We've also seen a second relationship, and that is the relationship of Christ to the church. What role does Christ have to the church? We've seen that Christ is the Lord and the Savior of the church. We've also seen that Christ is the lover of the church. 
Paul goes to great lengths to let us know that Jesus Christ loves the church and gave himself up for the church and has washed the church and seeks to sanctify the church and present the church to himself in all of her glory and majesty. Christ loves the church. He's the lover of the church. When you think about your relationship with Jesus, when you think about Christ's relationship with his church, he loves the church. But also, under that umbrella of the relationship of Christ to the church, what we want to look at this morning, that Christ is the caregiver of the church. That is, Jesus Christ cares about the church. And again, when I talk about the church, I'm not talking about this building. I'm talking about the universal church that is made up of every genuine believer. Christ is the caregiver of that church. He cares tenderly and affectionately about the universal church. Christ is truly the good shepherd of the church. That, that rich image in John chapter 10, where Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. Well, we see that in Christ's relationship with the church. He's the good shepherd. And technically, Christ is the pastor of the church. I have a label, senior pastor. That doesn't mean anything. The pastor of the church, the chief shepherd of the church is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who are pastors and elders, they're simply under shepherds, under the chief shepherd of the church. And when we come to our text, we see that Christ indeed cares for the church. He loves the church. He has a tender affection for the church. So we should never, ever look down on the body of Christ. We should cherish it and value it also. And so when we come to verse 29, Paul has just told the husbands that if you love your wife, you love your own body. If you love your wife, Christian husband, you love your own body. And Paul goes on to say, no one ever yet hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes his body. You, you got to be mentally off to hate your own body. And the stark contrast that Paul makes here between hating one's body is nourishing it and cherishing it. That is another way to put it. The stark contrast between hating your body is loving it. And how do you love your body? You love it by nourishing it and cherishing it. We all do that. That's the norm. But Paul makes the profound statement uh, in this verse, verse 29, just as Christ does the church, that is, the Lord Jesus Christ, he nourishes 
and cherishes the church. He loves the church is the point that Paul is making. And I just want to drive home to you these twin activities that are mentioned in verse 29. These words, nourishes and cherishes. And they're just simply the opposite of hate. It's a manifestation of an expression that Christ loves the church. And how does he do that? He does it by nourishing the church and cherishing the church. This word nourish, the only other time that it's used is in Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, when Paul is giving fathers instruction on raising their children. Paul says in Ephesians 6, 4, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but here's the word, bring them up. You want some advice on how to be a godly parent? You want some advice on how to be a godly father? Paul says, fathers, bring them up. Bring your children up. Nourish them. And and the idea is that you're helping them to develop from one stage to the next, to the next, to the next. And a father has a responsibility to his children to do that. To nourish them, to bring them up, is the point that Paul is making. Rearing them, bringing them up. And that's what Christ does for his church. The good news is Christ does not leave the church on its own to be all that he wants the church to be. On your own, on my own, that the universal church will never, ever reach its intended goal. It needs the nourishing, the bringing up, the rearing up of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's like a parent, a father or a mother trying to raise a child, but they have no input. They have no relationship with that child, and they think that that child somehow will raise himself or herself up, it's not going to happen. Someone has to invest in that child. Someone has to devote time to that child. And Paul is letting us know that Christ nourishes the church. He loves the church. He cares for the church. And he makes sure that the church is not left to its own, but he's working and moving behind the scene so that the universal church will be all that he designed the church to be. But coupled with that word nourish is the word cherish. Christ doesn't simply just nourish the church. He cherishes the church. I hope that's registering with you, that the Lord Jesus Christ cherishes Christians that the Lord Jesus Christ has a warm and tender affection for his children. We should not see Jesus as some mean, angry Lord and Savior. We need to balance our picture of the Lord Jesus Christ and recognize he cherishes the church. He cherishes the people of God. 
You might feel abandoned. You might feel like no one cares about you, that no one has feelings for you, but Jesus does. He cherishes you. And you see that when he was on earth, when he dealt with that woman caught in adultery. He tenderly cherished her and spoke to her with respect. Didn't condemn her, didn't beat her over the head, didn't say, get out of here, you wicked, evil woman. But he ministered to her. And that's what we see with our Lord. Yes, there's a side of him when he sees religious hypocrisy that he deals with it and drives it out. But there's another side of him that he is our tender and compassionate Lord. This word, cherish, is used in 1 Thessalonians 2.7. When Paul describes his relationship to the Thessalonians, on one hand, he was like a father to them. <laughs> but on the other hand, he says, I was like a mother to you, Thessalonians. And he says in 1 Thessalonians 2.7 that he was as a nursing mother, tenderly caring for her own ch- children. What a picture. Paul says, Thessalonians, as I ministered to you, I was like a mother nursing her infant baby. And that's not done in a harsh way, but that's done in a very comforting, compassionate, and affectionate way. One of the most beautiful pictures that you can see many times is in the relationship between a newborn and his mother is when the mother nurses that newborn. And Paul says, Thessalonians, that's what I was like in your midst. Yes, there's a fatherly side in me, but there's also a motherly side. I cherished you. I warmed you. I comforted you. And that's what Jesus does for his church. He nourishes the church. He cherishes the church. And you might say, where's the evidence? Where's the proof? And I would encourage you to read the book of Ephesians and you find the evidence all over the place. But let me just highlight for a few moments just some ways that Jesus tenderly and affectionately cares for the church. One of the ways he does that is that he deals with the church's problem of sin. I hope you recognize, I hope all of us recognize we got a sin problem. We are coming to this world as sinners. We're sinners by nature and by choice. And you can't solve that problem. I can't solve that problem. And nobody can solve that problem for you but the Lord Jesus Christ. And Ephesians says that Christ redeemed us. That is, he bought us. He purchased us. He went into the slave market of sin and bought us and removed us. He, he, he forgave all of our sins. Think about that. Think about how many sins you have committed. And there's not a one that if you're in Christ, he has not forgiven. If your sins were flashed on a screen, you'd be embarrassed. You'd be ashamed. But we can stand before our Lord Jesus Christ and know 
that he forgives all of our sins. Past, present, doesn't matter how great the sin, how small the sin, he forgives. Christ has dealt with the sin problem. And not only that, in our passage, it talks about him washing and cleansing his people. We're dirty. We're filthy. And we need washing. And when we get saved, we receive a spiritual bath. We've been washed. Our sins have been washed away. And you know the song, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. In Ephesians 1, 3, verses that you hear, Stephen uses that verse. I use that verse. But Paul says to the Ephesians that you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Do you hear that? You're not lacking anything if you're a Christian. That when God saves you, he gives you everything that you need to live life. And we have to appropriate those blessings. Someone said, trying to count them, that there were 33. I don't know. I'll take his word for it. But there are a multitude of blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus. Christ nourishes and cherishes the church. He does that for the church. And you come to Ephesians chapter 2, and Paul talks about how we once were dead. But instead, we've been made alive together with Christ. We've been raised up together with Christ. We've been seated together with Christ in the heavenly places. He nourishes and cherishes the church. Ephesians 4 talks about the fact that Christ has given gifts to the church, and particularly gifted individuals, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Why? So, so that the church can be edified, so that the church can grow and develop and become a mature church. Christ nourishes and cherishes the church. In that same chapter, it talks about how each joint supplies and builds up the body of Christ. I hope you understand that nourishing and cherishing of the church by Christ are not just empty words. Those are words that can be substantiated and undergirded throughout the rest of Scripture. Jesus nourishes and cherishes the church. And don't ever get that twisted. Don't ever get that wrong. It's not that he just did it sometime in the past, but this is an ongoing nourishing and cherishing. When you look at how Paul has written this, he doesn't say Christ nourished past tense or cherished past tense. He uses the present tense. Christ continually and ongoing is nourishing and cherishing his church. And you know what? That is natural to him. 
He doesn't have to be forced to do that. It's natural. Think about this. It's natural for us to nourish and cherish our own bodies. (laughs) The only time we don't do that is if something is messed up in our minds. But it's natural that each and every day I get up and I nourish and cherish my own body. But Christ does that for the church. He does it naturally. He doesn't have to be forced to do it. So this is the relationship of Christ to the church. He's the Lord and Savior of the church. He's the lover of the church, and he is the caregiver, the shepherd, the pastor of the church. But I want to end by looking at one last relationship. And it's not the relationship between Christ and the church, and it's not the relationship of Christ to the church, but I want us to look at the relationship of the church. The relationship of the church to Jesus Christ. We sing that we have a blessed Lord and Savior, a lover, a caregiver. But what about our relationship to Christ? What does that look like? And Paul points out two things. And the first thing that he points out is that the church submits to Christ. You want the biblical evidence? It's in verse 24. That's what the church does. The church submits to Christ, is subject to Christ. It places itself under the authority of the head of the church, Jesus Christ. That's what submission really is, is placing oneself under the authority of another. And when Paul says that the church submits to Christ, he's saying that the church willingly and voluntarily places itself under the authority of the head of the church. And we've seen it. There's no question about it. Jesus is the head of the church. He is the Lord of the church. I don't care what kind of pyramid scheme you come up for leadership. He's at the top. And the church, genuine believers who are part of the body of Christ, submits to the head of the church, subordinates themselves to the head of the body. And that's clearly what Paul says in verse 24. The church is subject to Christ. Can can it be said any plainer than that? It's not a command. Earlier, we saw that one of the results of being filled by the Spirit is that we're submitting ourselves to one another. You want to know if the Spirit of God is filling you with the fullness of God? Are you submitting to one another? Are you giving thanks, etc.? We saw that in verse 22, that wives have the awesome responsibility of submitting themselves to their husband. And the implication is this is a wife who's a Christian wife. This is a wife who is filled by means of the Holy Spirit. But in our verse, 
Verse 24, there's no command here. Paul doesn't say to the church, I'm commanding you to be subject to Christ. No, he's pointing out a reality. He's pointing out a truth. The church submits to Christ. Now, does the church always do that? No. No. You know it. I know it. Do you always submit to the Lord Jesus Christ? Does a local church always submit to Christ? Does the the universal church always submit to Christ? No. But that's what defines it. That's what marks it. You got a whacked out relationship if the church is defined as being defiant to the Lord Jesus Christ. Something is wrong with the church if it's not under the leadership of its head. Just think if the members of your body refuse to listen to your head, to your brain, to your mind. What, what chaos would be, that would be. And so, yes, the church is characterized as submitting to Christ. But you know and I know we don't do that perfectly. And that's why James... Chapter 4, verse 7, says to worldly Christians, to disobedient Christians, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Did you hear that? James has to write to his readers and say to his readers, in your relationship to God, make sure you place yourself under the authority of God. And I pointed this out to you before, that gets to the heart of the submission issue. Submitting. The issue is not who you submit to. The issue is a spiritual matter. James has to tell Christians to submit to the all-perfect, all-wise, all-knowing God. The, The God with whom there is no shortcomings or faults at all. The God who is everywhere present and all-powerful and all-knowing. James says, submit. Place yourself under his authority. We in our arrogance fight against that command. Even though there's no wrong with God, no shortcoming, we struggle. Because we want to do things our own way. We don't want to live out Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trusting in the Lord with all our heart. But regardless of that fact, Paul says the reality is that the church submits to Christ. And that's understandable. That's reasonable. In chapter 1 of Ephesians, verses 22 and 23, it, it makes it clear why we should accept the leadership in the lordship of Christ. That we should not wrestle with that. We should not fight against that. Paul says in Ephesians 1.22, and he, that is God, 
put all things in subjection under Christ's feet. Do you hear that? God did that. God took action and put all things in subjection under Christ's feet and gave Christ as head over all things to the church. That the church is run by Jesus Christ. He is the Lord of the church. And God did that. God basically gave Christ as head, as leader, as authority over all things to the church. No area that the church can look at where it can say Christ is not Lord. And he refers to the church as his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Christ is the head of the church, but the church, our relationship is that we submit to Jesus Christ. Is that a reality among us, Fairview? As a local church, I'm not talking about the universal church. Is it a reality among us that we are a local church that recognizes that Jesus Christ is the Lord of the church and that we place ourselves as a church under his authority. So we don't do things our way. We don't lean to our own understanding, but we lean to the wisdom and the understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ as reflected in his word. So do we seek to obey the Lord Jesus Christ, at the local church, do we evangelize? Do we seek to bring those that we know the gospel? And sometimes evangelism is just simple as, hey, you want to go to church with me? It can be that simple, that straightforward. It doesn't mean you have to be at a bus stop. It doesn't mean you have to have a megaphone and you're hollering out and shouting out. It can be just as simple as, I would love for you to come to Fairview with me. Can you come? Do we evangelize at the local church? Do we love one another? We have some Christians over here. Can't mingle with Christians over here. Do we have some Christians in our midst who are a little bit discouraged and defeated and mad about something so that they no longer seek their brother and sister in Christ's best possible good? Do we prioritize not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together? Is that a priority for us as a local church? Because it's mentioned in Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, are we committed to walking together in unity? Are we allowing Satan to provide and make divisions among us? Contentions, conflict, backbiting. So the question we have to ask ourselves, fear of you, as a local church, do we submit to Christ? I know Paul is talking about the universal church, but the universal church is to manifest itself in a local church. So 
Are we committed to submitting to Christ? The other thing that I want you to see about the relationship of Christ to the church, and I'll end with this, that the church is a part of Christ. The individuals who make up the members of the universal church are members of Christ. That's not my terminology. That's the biblical terminology. That a Christian, a genuine Christian, is a member of Christ's body. And the verse that argues for this and points this out is verse 30. Uh, We've been in that section. But Paul says in verse 30 that we are members. We are members. We are members of his body. And he says that so that we might know why Christ takes the time to care for us tenderly. Because we're members of his body. The analogy that is given in scripture is that Christ is the head and we are the body. But what's being emphasized here is not just simply that we're the body, but it's more intimate. Here, we are members. It's like the idea of parts and ligaments. That's who we are in relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not some big body where there's no individual pieces, but here, Paul's saying, we're members. We have an intimate, personal relationship with the Lord of the church, Jesus Christ. Do do not ever think of yourself as distant from Christ. Do not ever think of yourself as far away from Christ. You're a member. If you're a genuine believer, you're a member of the body of Christ. You make up his body, his mystical body called the church. And Paul is emphatic about this. He says, members, we are of his body. And in my mind, there's no better membership than this one. Some of you are part of Costco and Sam's Club. And you're willing to even pay for it to be members of that. And I'm not going to step on any toes, but some of you are members of a fraternity and a soror- sorority. And you value your membership. And some of us are members of a local church, or we should be. But there is no greater membership in all of the world than to be a member of the body of Christ. That membership is the ultimate membership. And if that membership is not yours, you will spend eternity in the lake of fire separated from God. So you say to myself, how how do I get that membership? Do I have to pay some money? No. Do I have to pray some prayers? No. Do I have to join some club? No. You have to repent of your sins and put your faith alone in Jesus Christ for salvation. And when you do that, when you repent and believe in the gospel, God saves you. And according to 1 Corinthians 12, 13, he makes you a part of the body of Christ. You become a member of his body. And and I want to tell you, with this membership, there are privileges, there are blessings. 
One of them we've already talked about. In verse 29, Christ nourishes and cherishes the members of his body. What a blessing that is. But there's also responsibilities. There's responsibilities. In fact, there's an awesome responsibility that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 when he's writing to the Corinthians about sexual purity. When he tells them that their sexuality and their bodies matter to God. That it matters what you do with your body. It matters what you do with your sexuality. Paul is trying to get these Christians to stop sinning in the sexual realm. And he says to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15, these words. He asks them two questions, and then he makes an exclamation statement. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Do, do you know that, Christian? That your body is the member of Christ? And then he goes on. Shall I take away the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Shall I take a part of Christ and join that to a, a harlot, to a prostitute? Can you conceive of that in your mind as a Christian? Are you willing to do that? Paul says, God forbid. Perish the thought that I would take a member of Christ and join it to a member of a harlot. Yet that's what the Corinthians were doing. Anytime they were committing sexual immorality, they were joining a member of Christ by their sexual sin to a member of a harlot, a prostitute. There's an awesome responsibility. When you're a member of Christ's body, when you're a part of Christ's body, you and I, we have an obligation, and responsibility to make sure that we flee from immorality, that we make sure that we're not engaged in causing something that belongs to Christ to be involved in something that is sinful. So my friends, there's an awesome responsibility here when it comes to your relationship to Christ, when it comes to the church's relationship to Christ. Yes, we submit to Christ and we're a member of Christ. We're a part of Christ. And so that means I need to look at my life and make sure that I'm not joining myself, a member of Christ, to something that it has nothing at all to do with Christ. So perish the thought that I would join Christ to my pornography. God forbid that I would unite Christ to my masturbation. 
May it never be that I would involve my Lord in sin. This is not some abstract concept, being a member or part of Christ. This has real implication on how you and I live our life. Yes, there are wonderful privileges being a part of Christ, but there's also responsibilities. The Christ in the church is a profound and wonderful theological truth. It's at the core of redeeming marriage. It's at the core of the book of Ephesians. It's foundational to walking in, living a life that honors God. And so I would encourage you, grab hold of this truth. Cling to it. Think about it. Make it a part of your understanding. It will do wonders for your marriage, for those who are married. It will do wonders for your walk as a Christian. Christ and the church. It's a, a reality that began on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. The church was born. And it's a reality that's ongoing. It's ongoing. And guess what? It's a reality that's going to be true throughout all eternity. <laughs> throughout all eternity, there will be Christ and the church. Marriage is temporary. It's just for earth. But our re marriage relationship to Christ, the relationship between Christ and the church, it will last throughout all eternity. And that's why Paul, in that wonderful passage in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 17, when he wanted to comfort the Thessalonians with regards to having lost a loved one who was a believer, he tells them that the day is coming where Jesus Christ will come back for the church, the universal church, for the members of his body. He'll come back. And the church will meet him in the air, in the clouds. And, and then the wonderful statement is that we, Paul said, Paul says, I'm included. You're included, Thessalonians. That we will always be with the Lord. That is good. We will always be with the Lord. And that's our reality now. Christ in the church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this great, rich, theological truth of Christ in the church. Thank you that this is the story within the story of marriage. May we drink deeply from this truth from this reality so that we understand the relationship between Christ and the church and Christ's relationship to the church and the church's relationship to Christ. May this theological truth make a difference in our walk with you as you have designed it to do so. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.